When I looked up, my first reaction was to say, wow, there are so many people here today. Yay! Thank you all for coming. And if you're online, I'll give you a clap too. Yay, thank you for watching online. Very good for you. But when you, when you stand here at the front, you don't know who's here until you turn around. And then I get here at like 9.30, and so when I get here, nobody's here. Well, the tech team is always here. I think they sleep here, but, but anyway. Yeah, let's give them a clap too. Very good, thank you. So um, today, we want to start a new series. We um, finished the uh, images of the church couple of weeks ago, and then last week we had a guest speaker, talked about the parable of the Good Samaritan. But for the next, I can't remember the exact number, but it's six or maybe seven weeks moving forward, we're going to be looking at the book of Philippians. Philippians is a book in the New Testament, one of Paul's letters, um, and the title for the series that we've selected is called Joy in Unity. And isn't that a beautiful design? Emily designed that beautiful uh, emblem for us. So thank you for that. But I selected this series and I talked with Nick about it and we agreed together a couple of months ago, actually back in November, probably maybe early December on this series. And as I've been preparing just even this week's sermon, this series, this book of God's Word is so, I'll borrow a, a French word, apropos for us, so appropriate, so suitable, so it spoke clearly into my heart. And so I hope as we go through this series, it will speak to your heart as well. So before we look at God's Word, let's bow for a word of prayer. Father God, we've already heard in the pastoral prayer that your word is um, quick and powerful. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It's there to uh, instruct, rebu rebuke, correct, and to bring us in closer relationship with you. And so we pray now as we begin this series on the book of Philippians that our hearts would be open to hear your Holy Spirit's speak to us and that our actions and our thoughts and our deeds and everything about us would respond in a way that is pleasing to you and glorifying to you and that we would have joy. So cleanse my lips now to speak your truth, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We live in a world that is desperately anxious. We're worried about finances. We're worried about our relationships. If we have them, we're worried about our children. We're worried about our parents. We're worried about our health, to name a few. Happiness can be a fleeting fancy. We get excited when we get a promotion or a raise. When our favorite sports team wins the big game, the Leafs lost yesterday, but anyway. So maybe we feel sad. Um, 
And when we get an item on sale at the supermarket, that's when I get super excited. <laughs> but those feelings of happiness soon fade. Why? Because life is hard and full of disappointments and full of trials. So you ask yourself, why should I rejoice? The answer comes from our next sermon series, Joy in Unity, a study of Philippians. So if we're going to understand this book in its context, we need to spend a little bit of time today, we won't do this every week, but we're going to spend a little bit of time today figuring out who these people are, why is Paul writing to them, when is he writing to them, all that kind of stuff, just so that when we read the text, we can read it with some semblance of understanding of what's going on in this book. All right? So for some background on the book of Philippians, if we want to go all the way back to the beginning of the church, uh, when this Philippian church started, it actually started probably in the year A.D. 51. This is when Paul was on his second missionary journey. We know all this information from reading the book of Acts. So when you go to the book of Acts and you get to chapter 16, Paul's already finished his first missionary journey, but he's on his second missionary journey. He's seen the vision of the Macedonian man saying, come over and help us. And so he moves from Asia and for the first time sets foot in Europe, in the Western world. And Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke are traveling together on the second missionary journey. And as they move from Asia into Europe, the first place they come to is Philippi. And there aren't really very many Jewish people there. So Paul didn't have a, a wonderful opportunity to go to the synagogue like he usually does when he goes on his missionary journeys. He went and sat down by the river. If we'd had time or our eyes were really good, I, I actually found a picture of the place where they're certain that Paul and this lady named Lydia sat down by the river. It's still there in the modern city of Philippi, this river where people go to sit. And so Lydia was the first Western Christian in the world. Lydia, this lady who sold purple fabric, lived in Philippi, and her family also became believers. And then we know that Paul and Silas got in trouble because there was some lady following them, prophesying about them. She had a demon, and she kept trying to distract what they were doing. And so Paul rebuked the spirit to come out of her. And because of that, the people who were in charge of her were mad because they were going to lose a bunch of money. So they accused Paul and Silas of treason. They ended up in jail. They got beaten. But while they were in jail... They sang songs to God, and God miraculously released them. And it was at that moment that another person came to faith in Jesus. That was the Philippian jailer. And his family also believed. So this is a church that started with some people. Lydia, the seller of purple, this jail guard and his family. And we have 
uh, just this small group of people starting. Because when God releases um, Paul and Silas from jail, they have to leave the city. So they're not there anymore. And you've got this little group of believers just starting out in about A.D. 51. So let me back up for a second. You may ask yourself, where is Philippi? You said this is the first place that Paul went to in Europe. So if we pull the map up on the screen, you can see Philippi is a place that has about 10,000 people in the first century. Not today, but in the first century, there were about 10,000 people there. It was also very, very important because it was a Roman colony, which means any person who is born there is a citizen of Rome. We talked about that in the citizenship. Christians have heavenly citizenship, all the benefits and privileges of being a Roman citizen. So the people of Philippi were very proud of their status, their situation, that they were a Roman colony and everyone who lived there was a Roman citizen if you were born there. Now, if you can't see the map clearly, I've put up a big red arrow so you can see. There it is. So that's where Philippi is. Just, and that's in what would be modern Greece today. And the little boot kicking the soccer ball of Sicily over there on the other side is uh, where Paul is in jail in Rome. And that leads us to the actual situation where Paul is writing this letter to the church. Now we're about 10 years later. So Lydia and the jailer and their families are all building up the church. They've got some people getting saved, and the church is building up, and now it's about 10 years later. So the people who had helped build up the church are people like Timothy and Clement, Lydia, Yodia, Syntyche, and some other people. All of these ones have been working for the past 10 years since the very start of the church to build it up. And Paul had stopped in to visit them several times on his third missionary journey and some other times. Why did he stop in? Well, he loves them, first of all. But this church had a reputation for being extremely fond of Paul and also of being extremely generous. And so when Paul was collecting for the poor church in Jerusalem, he would always stop by in Philippi and they would give him a gift to take along with him back to Jerusalem to support the poor Christians in Jerusalem. But at this point, around AD 60, AD 61, maybe AD 62, Paul is in jail. Why is Paul in jail? He got arrested, and then when he was in Caesarea, he talked to different people and ultimately appealed to Caesar. And when he appealed to Caesar, he travels on a boat, they have the shipwreck and all those things you can read in the last part of the book of Acts. But now he's in jail. He's in jail in Rome, awaiting his opportunity to defend himself to Caesar. Now, at this point, nobody knows what's going to happen. Is Paul going to get out and be freed? Is Paul going to get executed? Nobody knows. All we know is that Paul is in jail. So the Philippians are very, very concerned about Paul, and they want to check on him. 
So they send a guy by the name of Epaphroditus to go and take some money to Paul. Paul's in jail. He can't work. He can't get money for himself. And so Epaphroditus comes with some money to support Paul while he's in jail. Now, at some point, we're not sure at what point, either on the way, because it's about 700 miles. I don't know how many kilometers that is. I'm too old. Um, But 700 miles from Philippi to Rome for him to get there. And when he either was on the way or when he got to Paul, he got really, really, really sick. Sick to the point where he almost died. And so now the Philippians are doubly worried. Their friend who they sent to Paul is sick. Is he going to get there with the money? Is he already there with the money? Is he going to live? Is he going to die? Is Paul going to live? Is Paul going to die? We don't know. But after some time, Epaphroditus got better. And so it's at this point that Paul writes the letter to the Philippian church, and Epaphroditus is going to take that letter, and he's going to go back to Philippi and give that letter to them. Now, what's in the letter? Well, we're going to see as we go through this. But Epaphroditus, in the time that he spent with Paul, spent some time telling him about what was going on in this church. How were they doing? How are they feeling? What's the situation in the church? And that's what we want to talk about next. Ten years in, the church is struggling. They're having some difficulties. They have been very, very generous with Paul, but now they themselves are struggling financially. People in the church don't have a lot of money, and they are also um, having problems in and amongst themselves. They are arguing, and they are fighting with each other about various issues. One of the issues they're fighting about is, who's the boss? Who's in charge? Who should be the leader? Who's running the show? And this is causing problems. Some were anxious about persecution that they were experiencing from uh, outsiders. Remember, this is a, a, a Roman colony. All the people in Philippi are Roman citizens. They would look down on Christians, and they were suffering. Some were being influenced by false teachers, and who exactly these false teachers are, we're not exactly clear, but it seems like they were having a similar problem to what was in Galatians, where people were teaching them that you not only have to be a follower of Jesus, you also have to follow the law. You have to be circumcised. You have to do all the things that Jews do. This is a place where there aren't many Jews. And so they wouldn't know too much about this. And they're coming and saying, this is what you need to do. And so they're getting led astray by this, away from the truth of the gospel. So this is the situation that's going on in the church when Paul has to write this letter. And Epaphroditus is going to take this back to the church. So... Just as a a broad overview, what are some of the key words in this book? Because the more you use a word, the more it must be important in, in this context, right? 
So, I'm going to give you five key words for this book. Number one, the most common noun in the entire letter is Christ. Paul uses this name for Jesus more frequently than he does in any other book in the New Testament. It is the most common noun in the book. This book only has 104 verses, and yet Jesus is at the very center of everything in this book. Another very common word, although when I look through ESV, ESV translates it differently sometimes, and we're going to see that today. The idea of fellowship becomes important. The Greek word behind our English word fellowship is koinonia. And there's a lot of words in Philippians that come from the root of koinonia or fellowship. Sharing, partaking together. These words come up over and over and over again. Fellowship is a key word in Philippians. The word gospel is a key word in Philippians. It's not the most common word in the book, but it is, in comparison with all of Paul's other writings, he uses the word gospel more frequently in these 104 verses than he does in any other of his letters. Fourth key word is he uses a lot of words related to the idea of thinking Think, discern, um, consider. All sorts of words related to thinking really carefully about different things. The last key word is probably what Philippians is most famous for. And that is Paul in this letter uses the words, either the noun joy or the command rejoice 16 times in this book. It is pervasive. It is everywhere in the book of Philippians. For that reason, some people seem to think, oh, this situation in Philippians must be okay. He just talks about joy all the time. They must be happy. Everything must be wonderful. Everything must be great. But we've already said, this is a church that is struggling So why does Paul use this word joy so much? What does it mean to have joy? The answer is joy for Paul, and not just Paul, but all the biblical writers, was not an emotion or a mood. It's not simply how you feel. Joy is an attitude. And that's why... Paul can command them, as he does so many times, to rejoice. You can't tell people, be happy. You can, but it's worthless. It doesn't do any good. (laughs) Be happy. If I said to my children when they were young, you have to be happy now, they would look at me and think, what's wrong with you? But rejoicing isn't about how you feel. Rejoicing is an attitude. And that's why it can be commanded. And the source of the joy is not something you build up inside yourself. It's not the power of positive thinking or any of that other kind of nonsense. It is rejoicing in the Lord. 
chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4, Paul emphasizes that your joy is in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. And Paul can command this to them because they are in the Lord. So what does it mean to have joy? Well, an attitude of joy is rooted in taking what I like to call the long view. What does that mean? Well, happiness is based on our present circumstances. If things are going well right now, I'm happy. When, co- when problems come, I am not happy. I am anxious when things are uncertain. And this lack of certain certainty leads to speculation, especially for me, about all the ways things could go wrong, even before they go wrong. I'm really good at dreaming up the way, the, the way things could go wrong. This bad thing could happen, that bad thing could happen, lots of bad stuff could happen. But Paul's answer, why he tells them to rejoice and to have joy, is because when you take the long view, it's the only way for us to see problems and difficulties from the right perspective. Joy doesn't come from seeing everything go perfectly well right now. It comes from a deep and abiding faith in God who loves and cares for his people, both in the present and the future. If we focus on self-reliance, earthly desires, and immediate benefits, we will be disappointed. God wants us to put our faith in him and to trust him. And when we do that, then we can have joy. So with that as a backdrop, I now want to walk us through the first 11 verses of this book of Philippians. Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. And I've entitled the message today, Paul's Joy for the Philippians. Now we have an outline, but before we get to the outline, I'm going to read the first two verses, because the outline really covers uh, after the address. Verses 1 and 2 of Philippians, like all of Paul's letter, is the, is the address or the introduction. Uh, typically, when letters were sent in the first century, what you would do is you would write the content of the letter, and then you would take the letter, you would roll it up like this, and then on the outside you would write who it's from and who it's to. And so that's why you see in all of Paul's letters, the very first thing is who it's from and who it's to. And then you open it up and you look inside to see what he has to say. So what is Paul going to say to this church that he loves so much, that loves him so much, but is also struggling with some really big problems? And the answer is, he is going to ask them, command them to have joy. So let's look at this introduction. Even in this introduction, there are some important details to note. Verse 1 and 2 says this, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi 
with the overseers and deacons. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at that. Even in the first two verses, he's mentioned Jesus already three times because that's where joy comes from in knowing Jesus. He also here includes Timothy as a co-writer. Now, does that mean Paul and Timothy sat down together and wrote the book? No, but Paul knows how much the Philippians love Timothy and Timothy loves the Philippians. So by putting his name there with him, he's saying Timothy agrees with this and Timothy is also, um, we're going to find out in chapter 2, going to come to them again later. Some people speculate that they were asking not for Epaphroditus to come back uh, with the letter, but for Timothy to come back. But we'll see in chapter 2 that Paul says Timothy can't come back right away, but he wants them to know that Timothy loves them and cares about them. Second thing to notice about this introduction is oftentimes Paul calls himself an apostle, especially when they're uh, questioning his authority. But notice here that Paul identifies himself and he identifies Timothy as a servant, as a slave. In a Roman colony, slaves are garbage. Slaves are the lowest of the low. And yet, in a church that is struggling with who's going to be the boss, the one who started the church says, I'm not going to call myself the boss. I'm going to call myself your servant. So he writes that to all the saints in Christ Jesus, along with the overseers and deacons. Notice who he puts last in that list. He doesn't put the leaders first. He puts the leaders last. Again, what's he trying to show? Right away, he's establishing this idea of servant leadership. And verse 2 is a standard greeting. Even in secular letters, they would offer grace and peace. But Paul does so, grace and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So oftentimes when we read these books, we just sort of skip over those first two verses. But there's a lot that tells you about the mood. What's the situation as we go into this letter? So how does Paul begin a letter as I said, with a church that he loves so much, which has helped him so much, but is now really struggling. And the very first thing he does is he starts with joy. So our outline for today is we're going to look first at verses 3 to 5, which talk about Paul's joyous thanksgiving. Then verses 7 and 8 are going to talk about Paul's joyous affection. And then finally, we'll look at Paul's joyous prayer in verses 9 to 11. So here we go. In, these first, uh, in the first part of all of Paul's letters, I think except for one, he always includes a thanksgiving. And in Philippians, he does exactly the same. So starting in verses 3 through 6, here's what he says. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, 
for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So three short verses where Paul thanks God for the Philippians. Now what he does when he thanks God, he thanks God in three ways. In verses 3 and 4, he thanks God for past memories. I thank God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. It's very interesting. When you look at, the, at Paul's writings, Paul very, very seldom thanks God for stuff. Thank you, God, for money. Thank you, God, for health. Thank you, God, for all my good stuff. You don't find that. What Paul typically thanks God for is people. And there's no exception here. Notice what he says, too. I make my prayer for all of you with joy. Where is Paul right now? Is he lounging with Nick on the beach in Southern California where everything is hunky-dory, super warm, and no clouds, and happy days every day? Ha, ha, ha. No. Paul's in jail. Being in jail in the first century is a horrible, disgusting existence. You are sitting on the ground, handcuffed or, or in chains between two guards. You can't get up. You can't move around. You can't go anywhere. You are stuck. And you are in a bad place. He's also in a place where when he gets out, he may get out to really get out, but he may get out in order to go. And what we ultimately know happens to him later is get his head chopped off. And yet, in the middle of his own circumstances, in the middle of knowing their circumstances, Paul says, I thank God for you. Because every time I remember you and think about you, God has filled my heart with joy. It's not about his present circumstances. It's an attitude of saying, God is in control and he is working out his plan for you and he's working out his plan for me. So Paul starts by thinking about the past. He remembers how the church started. He remembers their love and support for him. He remembers all of these things and it brings him joy. He's taking the long view. He's seeing the big picture. Secondly, Paul focuses on the present in verse 5. He's thankful to God for their present fellowship. Verse 5 says, Because of your, and ESV translates it, partnership, but it could just as easily be translated fellowship, because of your partnership fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. There is a three-way bond between these groups. There's Paul, there's Philippians, and there's Christ. 
And the three of them are glued together by the gospel. Their partnership in the gospel is a fellowship, a deep connection to see the world come to know Jesus. And that is another thing that gives him joy. Because they are in Christ, they have been partners with Paul from day one. Lydia, the jailer, all these others that have come in the intervening 10 years, all of them have given of themselves, of their money, of their time, of their abilities to be partners, to be in fellowship together with the gospel, with Paul. And because of that, Paul feels joy. Now you say, how good were they? I mean, you say they loved Paul and Paul loved them and they gave money for him. Well, let's hear what Paul himself has to say about this in 2 Corinthians 8. Paul talking about the Philippian church in 2 Corinthians 8 is describing to the Corinthians how faithful the Philippians are. Here's what he has to say. Talking about the Philippians, not the Corinthians, the Philippians. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. These people loved Paul. They loved the gospel. And yet they weren't perfect. They had problems. They had difficulties. And yet they were partners with Paul in the gospel. And that, as he thinks about it, gives him joy. Finally, in this section, Paul is thankful for the future. He's thankful for the future glory that he knows is coming for them. Verse 6. I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. I am sure. I know. Notice what he knows. He doesn't know that they're going to work hard. He doesn't know that they are going to remain faithful. What does he know? He knows that God is going to do the work. That God is the one who saves from beginning to end. God is the one who's in charge. I am sure that he who began a good work in you, he's not talking about himself. He's talking about what God has done in their hearts. 
what God began in you, a good work, will bring it to completion when Jesus Christ returns. When I was looking at some commentaries to prepare for this, Moses Silva in his commentary on Philippians says about this verse, this emphasizes the godness of God. Salvation is a work of God from beginning to end. And that's true. We're going to see that when we get to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, 12 and 13 says what? Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Why? For it is God who is at work in you to complete it. So am I saying, or is Paul saying, just do whatever you want. Everything is okay. No. He's going to say later, work out your salvation. But who is working in you? It's God. He is completing the work. And that is what gives Paul joy. I am sure that God is going to do his work. That he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Jesus. And that gives him joy. He knows there's a future for them. He knows that when Jesus comes, they will be standing with Jesus in victory. Despite their struggles, despite their fighting, despite the persecution, despite the false teaching, despite everything. God will finish his work. And that gives Paul joy. The second joy that Paul experience, experiences in this section is joyous affection. He loves these people. And this is verses 7 and 8. I'll read them for you now. It is right for me to feel this way about you all. He's talking about the joy that he has for them. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in, in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. He really loves them. So I want to look at this section, two verses, and look at three, three of the affections, or his affection from different standpoints. Affection from the heart, affection from fellowship, and affection from Christ. First is affection from the heart. He says, it's right for me to feel this way about you because I hold you in my heart. As I said in the introduction, Lydia, I'm sure Lydia has a special place in his heart. She is the first believer in this church ever. She is the first believer ever in the world to come to faith in Jesus on the continent of Europe. He loves her and Yodia, and Syntyche, and Clement, and the jailer, and all of the people in this church, they are in his heart. 
He loves them because he was instrumental in seeing them come to faith in Jesus. They have a special place in his heart. I know for myself, when I was in China for 20 years, those people that came to faith while I was there hold a special, special place in my heart. I think of one young lady, she's not so young anymore, her name is Benita. Benita was a young girl who came from Beijing. Family life was not very good. And the first foreign teacher that she had was an alcoholic. And the school had to fire that alcoholic teacher the third week of the semester. And so in the fourth week of the semester, she was moved because that teacher was gone, she was moved into my class. And Benita had a yearning, had a desire to understand English. And so she began to follow me every time she had a free period. If I was teaching a class, she would come to my class because she was desperate to improve her English. And so then, Cindy, my wife, and I would invite her over to our house. And she would practice her English with us, and we would talk to her about Jesus. Year one went by. Year two went by. And we were continuing to talk to her. Sometimes we'd talk to her on the phone. She told me later that the record for the time that we talked on the phone in one phone call was seven hours. We talked on the phone once for seven hours on a Saturday. Anyway, third year of university, Easter was coming. And so we've been talking to her and talking to her about the love of Jesus and what he had done on the cross for her. And I gave her the Jesus film. And on Easter Sunday, she watched the Jesus film. And at the end, they gave an invitation and she gave her heart to Jesus. I love her. I love her. She lives in Arizona today with her American husband. We talk, not often, but every time we talk, feelings of love and affection come welling up in my heart as I remember her struggle to come to faith in Jesus. Later, she went to get a biblical counseling degree at Trinity and now she's in Arizona with her husband serving God. I love her. She is in my heart. So I understand what Paul is saying here. He loves these people. He knows them. He knows the struggles they're feeling. He loves them because of Jesus. So there's not only affection in his heart. There's affection for them because of, again, fellowship. He says... In the second part of verse 7, for you are all fellowshippers with me of grace. Now look at the grace that they're sharing. Hooray! You share the grace of my imprisonment. That wouldn't be how I would describe imprisonment. But Paul talks about it as God's grace. Later we're going to see Paul says, I have joy because something's going to happen to me. Either I'm going to get killed that's a good thing because then I'll go to heaven 
or I'll get released. And that's a good thing because then I'll be able to come and see you again. So no matter what happens, it's a good thing. Paul knows what it means to have joy. You are fellowshippers with me of God's grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. These people work together. They have a bond. They have a connection. And that connection is the gospel. If we want to have fellowship in this church, it's not going to be because we all like the same food or because our skin is all the same color or because we're all in the same income tax bracket. It's because we are deeply connected through the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the only way that we're going to have true fellowship. That's the way that Paul had fellowship with the Philippians. Finally, his affection is not primarily drawn only from himself. He ends this section by saying that his affection comes from Christ. He brings God in as a witness. He says in verse 8, For God is my witness. He knows that this is true. How I yearn for you all with the affection of Jesus. This affection of Jesus, what is he talking about? This yearning that he feels moving his entire being. Now, we could say that he's just saying, I'm imitating Christ. He's going to say later in the book, imitate me. And maybe he's saying, I'm imitating the love that Jesus has for you. But I don't think that's what he's saying. What I think he's really saying is, Jesus Christ is expressing his love through me. I am loving you with the love that Jesus has for you. That's something that we need to tap into. I'm sure there are people in this church that bug you. I'm sure there are people in this church that annoy you. And you say, it's really hard for me to like them. Ask Jesus to help you. Ask Jesus to love them through you. And when we begin to love people with the love of Jesus, it's no longer just Jesus loving them. It's us loving them too. That's what it means to be united. That's what it means to be together. We have problems. They have problems. But Paul has affection for them because Jesus is loving them through him. Finally, in verses 9 to 11, Paul says, I have joy so that I pray for you. This is Paul's joyous prayer. Here's what he says. It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ 
to the glory and praise of God. That's a pretty great prayer. So Paul prays for two things and those, that those two things would result in two things. The first thing he prays for is more love. This is the beginning of verse 9. He says, It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more. Notice when he prays this, he doesn't say that your love for God would increase or that your love for other believers would increase or that your love for the world would increase. He just says all of it. That your love may abound more and more. He wants them to love each other. He wants them to love God. He wants them to love their neighbor. That is his, the first part of his prayer. The second part of his prayer is he prays that they would have more understanding. The last part of verse 9 says he's praying not only for love, but that with that the love they have would be with knowledge and all discernment. Now, if we're going to love God, we have to know God. You can't love someone you don't know. So the more we know God, the more we're going to love God. So he not only prays that they would love, love God, love their neighbor, but that they would know God. Now, how do I know that the knowledge is focused on God? Because if you look at all of Paul's prison letters that he wrote when he was in Rome, Ephesians, Colossians, Philemon, we don't have time to read them all, but Ephesians 1.17, Colossians 1, 9 and 10, Philemon verse 6, every time in the opening Thanksgiving section when he talks about knowledge, it's always linked directly to Knowing God. Knowing God. So his prayer is that they would have all knowledge and discernment. If you only superficially love God, it probably means you only know God superficially. How then do we know God? You come to church you listen to sermons, you read the Bible, you join a growth group, you get yourself involved in reading God's Word to know Him. That's what's important. Not only knowledge, but also discernment. Another word for discernment is insight. This word is only used once in the New Testament, but it is used 22 times in the Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint in the book of Proverbs. And every time it's used, it's used to talk about practical application of knowledge. Figuring out what you know is right and doing it. So Paul prays for them that they would not only know God, but they would also have practical knowledge, practical discernment, that they would know how to do the right thing. And so that leads to two results. Starting in verse 10, Paul says, so that you may approve what is excellent. What is excellent? 
It's not just doing the right thing instead of the wrong thing. It is the ability to choose the best over the second best. Knowing when you have two good choices, doing the best one. So what are we saying here? If God's, this is from R. Kent Hughes, if God's children overflow with love to God and others, along with the growing personal knowledge of God and Christ and practical insight, they will be able to discern and choose what is superlative, the best over the second best, the best over the good, the best in knowledge of God, the best in priorities, the best in habits, the best in pleasures, the best in pursuits, the best course of action for, their, for themselves and for their families. Paul doesn't fool around when he prays. He's praying that they would have love and knowledge and discernment so that they could pick not only right from wrong, but that they would choose what is excellent. Finally, he prays that the result of their love and knowledge would be good works for God's glory. He ends verse uh, 10 and all of verse 11 with this. And as a result, be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. What does it mean to be pure? Pure is unmixed. There's no guile. There's no sin. We have a term in computers. We call it wig. What you see is what you get. Purity. No mixture. Blameless. Blameless literally means without stumbling. The goal for them to love and to know God and to make right decisions is that they will not stumble. So on the day when Jesus Christ returns, they will be able to stand up with Christ and say, we did what you wanted us to do. What does he want you to do? Verse 11, to be filled with the fruit of righteousness, which reminds us of Galatians 5, living in a way that pleases God, love, joy, peace, gentleness, patience, goodness, all of which is done to the glory of God. So let me ask you as we conclude, I want to ask you four questions. Number one, do you have joy? It's not a feeling, it's an attitude tied to trust in God. It's only available to those in Christ who have accepted Christ and are part of his body. If you're here today and you don't feel joy, maybe it's because you don't know Jesus. The first step to taking the long view and understanding that God is working something in you is to become a follower of Jesus. If you're not here, if you're not a follower of Jesus and you're here today, you're watching online, 
Give your life to Jesus today. You can't have joy until you know the giver of joy, and that is Jesus. If you know Jesus and you're struggling for joy, think about all that God has done for you. Joy comes when God is big. When problems are big, joy is small. When God is big, joy is big and problems are small. Second question. Do you want real fellowship? Give yourself to the gospel at home and around the world. Fellowship comes not from drinking coffee in the lobby or meeting at 12.30, which I will be happy to do today online. Real fellowship comes in sharing and being united in the gospel. When we were in China, lots of people would come for two years, sometimes a year and a half, working in an embassy or working in a Western business. They would come to Beijing. Some people would come. They would come to church on Sunday, and then at the end of their two years, they would go back to their home country, and they would often say, I'm, I'm just glad to go home. I was never really connected here. I didn't really feel fellowship. But I found personally that the people who got connected in the church by getting involved, by serving in the church, by being connected with sharing the gospel, whether it's working on the tech team or um, helping out with youth or ESL or a growth group or whatever activity it may be, once they got connected with other people and working together in sharing the gospel with others, they felt deeply connected. They felt true fellowship. Serving together with others is the way to know real fellowship. So I would ask you, if you want real fellowship, join with a band of brothers and sisters to pray and serve God with the gospel of Jesus. Third question, who do you love? Affection is rooted in connection. First of all, in Christ, and then in other believers. As I said, there may be people in this church who bug you, who annoy you, who you don't like. But if they're followers of Jesus, they're in the family. They're part of the heavenly citizenship. They are being built together with you in the holy temple to offer spiritual sacrifices to God. Remember the good in Arendelle Bible Chapel with fond affection based on our fellowship together in the grace of the gospel ministry. And if you can't bring it out of yourself, ask Jesus to help you, longing for all with the affection of Jesus. Last question. Are your prayers too small? Oftentimes we pray for what we want, what we need. Nothing wrong with that. I'm not saying not to pray for those things. I need a job. I need money. I need this. I need that. Pray for those things. God asks us to. Nothing wrong with that. 
But Paul also prays for big stuff. That's why I asked the question, are your prayers too small? Paul, Paul prayed for the Philippians to experience abounding love, deep knowledge of God, practical discernment, productive holy living to the glory of God. I challenge you today, pray for the big stuff. Ask God to give you the big stuff. And he is faithful to give you the little stuff. He will be faithful to give you the big stuff. And then you will experience joy. Amen. Oh, sorry. I should pray. I should pray. I'm sorry. Father God, we thank you that as we look at this book of Philippians, we can see that you have joy, or Paul has joy in you. And he has joy with the Philippians, for the Philippians, and they have it for him simply because of their partnership in the gospel. I pray that we would be people of faith, people of joy, who together are serving you because we know it is your work that we are confident that you are going to complete it at the day of Jesus Christ. So we ask that we would be people of love and knowledge and discernment, bearing forth good fruit of righteousness to your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.